0: Remember, I do the research. I run around with astronauts and space force people, trying to learn what they're doing. It started me thinking, like, who would Scarpetta be if I were creating her now? Where would I go that's new and different? And I thought, well, probably be NASA. You could skydive from in here. <laughs>
1: Thomas and Mercer, home of criminally good stories with surprises around every corner, launches Spin. The second instalment, an international best-selling author, Patricia Cornwall's Captain Chase series. In the aftermath of a NASA rocket launch gone terribly wrong, Captain Callie Chase races against time to thwart a plot that leaves the fate of humanity hanging in the balance. Discover Spin. And the first in the Captain Chase series, Quantum, at amazon.co.uk forward slash Captain Chase. And from Tracy Buchanan, the best selling author of Wall of Silence and My Sister's Secret, comes Circle of Doubt, her new, not to be missed psychological thriller. Emma found the life she dreamed of when she adopted Isla, but will a new neighbour, who looks just like Isla's birth mother, snatch it all away? Order your copy at Amazon.co.uk forward slash Circle of Doubt. Kindle Unlimited subscribers can read both books at no additional cost. Hello and welcome back to Hift We're thrilled you're joining us for another exciting podcast. Today, we welcome the international best-selling author, Patricia Cornwall, as she celebrates the launch of her new book, Spin, in a UK exclusive event. Patricia is interviewed by Alex Clark. So sit back, relax, grab your spacesuits and join us and audiences from across the world to bring Hif into your home. This episode was kindly supported by Thomas and Mercer.
2: Hello and welcome to the Harrogate International Festival. I'm so delighted to be joined by you today and to be joined by none other than Patricia Cornwell. My name is Alex Clark. I'm going to be talking to Patricia over the next hour or so about her new books in. Patricia, I know that you've been to the Harrogate Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival in the past, but you're joining us now, of course, in the new world from elsewhere, aren't you?
0: Yes, z- Zooming remote um, from, from uh, the Cape in, in, outside of Boston in Massachusetts. That's where I am right now. It's a funny way to be
2: launching a book, I know. But it's so interesting that your, your book spin
0: is about so many of the new ways of communicating. Well, we, we may as well all be in outer space right now. Because when you think about it, if you were in outer space... You cannot access the world that you look at because it's too dangerous. I mean, you can't just go out. Um, well, you can if you know how to do spacewalks, but you're you're living in a vacuum with extreme temperatures and um, and, and now I, I look out the window and I see people walking by or you see the ocean or you or cars, but you can't really be there, and it's very weird. And and I do think that when people read spin that they're going to relate to the way captain the, the world we're talking about. Cause you have a government shutdown, you mm-hmm. have a terrible storm. So there's an, an evacuation because of this nor'easter. And so there's this sense of, of great isolation. Cause during a government shutdown, you know, the NASA centers, you know, all, all the people are furloughed until it's over with. So this, this is what's going on in spin. And yet, The pandemic hadn't started yet, and I had no idea that by the time this book came out, people would be living in many ways very similarly to how my characters are. Yes, it
2: really struck a chord with me as I read it, this idea of battling the elements, battling things that you don't know, the unseen forces, and most importantly, simply not knowing what is going to happen. Patricia, we're going to talk about about Spin and its its predecessor, Quantum, this new series that you've created. It's 30 years since you published your first book, Postmortem, a completely different uh, kind of writing, but one that you did an enormous amount of research for. It's as if you always want to break new ground, address new frontiers. I mean, for goodness sake, you can hardly have had a more successful character than Kay Scarpetta and one that spoke to so many readers. Just tell us a little bit about why you decided, No, I wanna do something completely
0: new. Well, first of all, let me tell you, Scarpetta's not gone and she's she's very happy to have these two young scientists, Callie and Captain Chase, now getting launched in their own series. I mean, these are 28 year olds, um, is very different from what we're dealing with with Scarpetta. But one thing that, you know, a lot of people may not know is that when I wrote Postmortem, um, the very first Scarpetta book, she was already kind of fully blown. I mean, she was a chief. She was the chief medical examiner of Virginia. Now she was up against a lot of odds as the new girl in town. But she was more, she was farther along than Callie and Karma Chase are. And that's what's kind of fun because in Quantum, it's sort of the origin story. You kind of know who they are and you get introduced, but you don't really know what's going on until you get to spin. I mean, really, truly quantum is almost like it's a prelude to a really big symphony that's about to start. Cause I mean, within the first 50 pages of spin, you understand what this is all about and what these two girls were born to do. Literally planning from inception, practically what was in the plan for them to be these prototypes for What's really the modern day astronaut, the guardians of space, as Space Force calls their officers, they were being groomed long ago to be the new guardians in space, um, which are humans who are enhanced with technologies in a way that I think a lot of people are going to find really cool and also rather mind-boggling because it's all—it's either already being done or it will be. And, and so that you know, when you when you mentioned the scarpetta world, let me just say that when I first started, the first time I walked into a morgue was in 1984, and nobody was writing about morgues or laboratories. They were just talking about DNA and using lasers and this stuff. And I said, wow, this is a world nobody knows about. And it's a really complicated one. And a lot of it is very abstract, like when you're you're doing things with a scanning electron microscope or x-ray diffraction and all these things. But If you can find the human story in this this could be really interesting so that's what i did that like you said 30 something years ago well i want to do the same thing with space these these technologies are truly mind withering i know because i didn't i dropped every science course i could in college and i can't do math and so for (laughs) me to be wandering around nasa campuses uh let me tell you something it's it's quite daunting but again It's a matter of taking these very difficult technologies and and putting them in the context of people and showing you why it matters. Just like in the forensic world, a fleck of paint that you might find embedded in an injury is going to give you the make and model of that automobile that hit that person. Okay? Well, Mm -hmm. there may be something that shows up in Captain Chase's on her spectrum analysis, On the noise floor, a signal that tells you there's an intruder in the building or there's a surveillance device that's been planted somewhere. So it's, again, the invisible world. What does it have to tell us?
2: Well, it's really interesting that the book begins, as you say, it begins in a terrible storm. It begins with a tremendous catastrophe having happened, there has been a a, a terrible disaster as a rocket has launched and Callie, not quite knowing where her twin sister is or what part she has played in all this, Mm. must come to the bottom of it. And of course, again, it was so interesting uh, to me to read that when we are surrounded by the idea of these great institutions of American democracy, American scientific and technological achievement. It's so easy for them to be breached, and the consequences are so huge. It's a very political book in lots of ways.
0: Well, you know, it kind of is because, it, for, for starts, it's set in Virginia. I mean, in Tidewater, Virginia, where, which is where NASA Langley is located on a peninsula with, with Langley Air Force Base, and you are literally right in the middle of where the Civil War was pretty much lost by the South because right there is Fort Monroe, and Fort Monroe was held by the North, and Lincoln would go back and forth there, right in the middle, right there in Hampton. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to this day, you have this—you have a your families that can be kind of divided, the red and the blue, as we say. And we've seen an awful lot of that lately, and hope we'll never see it as badly again as we've been seeing it here in the United States. But you—you you can't deal with the—you can't deal with NASA. And not be dealing with politics because this is as big as it gets and whoever owns up there rules the world you don't want china getting up there first and and occupying the moon or mars or taking out our satellites or the russians i mean we are in a race a space race the likes of which we've never seen because You know, the Bible has an interesting verse where it talks about, I believe it's when the children of Israel were trying to, the Israelites were trying to get into the promised land, get across the desert or whatever. And at one point, somebody, God's not happy. And there's a reference to the the heavens became brass, like, you know, no communication. You can't get through. Well, that's what will happen if the wrong people rule up there the heavens will become brass because all our signals will be shielded or they'll be diverted you won't have gps Um, we won't be able to deal with our military or our aircraft i mean every it's just unbelievable what is being um managed from at least 250 miles up if not twenty-two thousand miles up in the geostationary orbit where most of the really um sensitive communication satellites are and um so I'm trying to. It seems really abstract, but this is all boils down to you're driving home in your pickup truck, like Captain Chase is after the rocket's blown off up because it's been hacked. After the astronauts lose communication with Houston during a spacewalk, um, all of this because of the evil Neva Wrong, who is sort of the Darth Vader of the biotech billionaire world, and um, and Callie's driving home, finally getting home in a blizzard. And guess what? Her navigation system in her pickup truck gets hijacked and it Mm -hmm. wants to lead her to some out of the way place where that is familiar to her. It is something that was meaningful in Callie and Karma's childhood. And she doesn't know, is it my missing sister that's doing this? Or is it an enemy that's leading me into a trap? And the answer is yes. (laughs) <laughs> you, you mentioned
2: there uh, China, Russia, the States, and then, of course, you came to the idea of the tech world, so it's really not simply countries and their governments and regimes that we're talking about, it is the whole world of the tech billionaire, and the idea, I think, of of uh, what you call Niva Rong's agenda of total dominance, complete dominance, oh Um, That's obviously something that's been playing on your mind as much as we've seen elements of it playing out in the world. Tell us a bit about that.
0: Well, we have people now who have the power and wealth of entire countries. And we hope that they will continue to be good people, most of these ones we know of, because if you should get somebody with that kind of power, um, and and these are international figures, because if you're dealing with space, Um, If you're an American industry dealing with space, then you're dealing with all of our allies, you're dealing with all kinds of countries all around the world. If you manufacture satellites, for example, you're also dealing um, with countries who don't have those capabilities who need to have satellites. And so it becomes more and more international. In fact, space has become so international that the newest latest greatest space plane that's called the dream chaser made by the sierra nevada corporation people um one of the things that's so cool about it is it can land i mean you go take it up there in a rocket and you're going to get to go up in that thing in the rocket in the book but later when you come back down that thing can land on almost any runway that a normal like jet can land on you don't have to have it land on the Kennedy Space Center shuttle runway that's gotta be endlessly long. I mean, this thing can land like an airplane or a glider at your local airport, which means we're gonna have space planes going up into space and they might go launch at Kennedy and they are going to they might land in Australia at an airport there so the crowds can come out and see a space plane up close and personal. That's where we're headed. It's gonna become that ubiquitous. Okay
2: tell me now about this business of when you first got interested it always for you starts with research and really in-depth research so what came first there the idea that you wanted to write about space and then
0: the research or did they feed into each other well it came the idea started with a challenge um four years ago i was in london and i had decided that i wanted to do tv and film this was after chaos the last scarpeta book came out and i thought do something different and i was meeting with various producers and so forth and um this very lovely agent named sophie dolan said to me you know there's talk about doing a female james bond have you ever thought of doing a character of that something like that and now of course we already have female james bond type characters but i thought it made me it got me thinking i thought if i were going to launch a scarpetta series all over again today who would she be? What would I pick? And I thought, well, I would go, it would be NASA. I'd have to go to NASA. That's where I would go to find the latest, greatest, everything, um, and to explore what is this all about and what does it mean? And and, and by the way, why should we care? Let's start with that. (laughs) Why should we care about people going up in rockets? Well, I'll tell you why you better care. Because it's it's your it's you going up in that rocket. It may as well be you, because space is here and it's all about us. You know, my mantra is from space to ground to six feet under, because it's all connected, including death, mm. um, which is another interesting subject. Because my views on all of that have changed a lot since doing this uh, research into these types of of space technologies and what they might mean and why. Again, why do we care? Well. You know, stories tell us how to live who we are and who we should be. And we keep exploring up there. We keep going. We have always been exploring. Why do we do that? Well, first of all, it may very well be we're not the only life in the universe. I firmly believe we're not. It seems preposterous that we would be. And we don't know who we we really are or where we're from it's sort of like you might have been born, your, your ancestors might be from Europe, even though you've lived in America as long as you know. And then you go, wow, I have genetics that are slightly different than I thought. And, and, and that helps you know better how to define yourself, perhaps. So I know who we aren't from writing the Scarpetta series, because I'd like to think we're not all savages. And, I, and if you think, by the way, I'm not scared of extra, extraterrestrials if they're out there. They could have been doing us in a long time ago. And if you've ever been in the morgue, there is nobody scarier than us. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody it's scarier cool. than one us. Another. Humans, yeah. the cruelty that we're capable of. So I'm not scared of life out there. I'm interested in it. I'm interested in us. And most of all, what can we learn about how to live better, how to more closely embrace who we might be? It's like Buzz Aldrin said. He said, we are a magnificent species. And I'm not sure what all he means by that because he's been up to the moon and I haven't. He might know something I don't know. He may have met a few folks, who knows? But I think we are a magnificent species and we haven't been seeing a lot of it lately, but I think we need to be reminded and we need to behave better.
2: I'm imagining when you begin to do that research, so you have your character, you've thought to yourself, okay, if I were going to write a new letter." Who would that new skull had to be? And you come across the idea of Callie Chase and then her twin sister. I'm imagining you don't go and knock on the door at NASA and say, hey, I'm going to write a novel. Can I just come and have a wander around? It well, is a sealed world. How did you get in there?
0: Well, no, it doesn't quite work that simply. But let me just say real quick that this all began on, I believe the date was October 11th, 2002. And the reason I can remember that it was exactly one month before my very first Jack the Ripper book was about to come out. And I was not really interested in anything but that at that time, but I got an invitation to go to NASA Langley for a tour. And I have, there's no way I was going to turn that down. So I went over there for this tour and it was led by these identical twin scientists, um, Christine and Celeste Belcastro. And, um, and they gave me this tour. I was like, I think it was like about two days long. I never did anything with it. And I went back to my Scarpetta stuff. But then when I started thinking about this four years ago, I set about tracking down those twins. Um, and we managed to get hold of Christine because we unfortunately Celeste died of cancer in the interim. And, but Christine, I, so I went back to NASA Langley And, um, and that's where I met my first protective services officer. I didn't know NASA had a police force. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the pieces started coming together. And when Christine would talk to me about what it was like to have your identical twin that you lived with and did everything with, went to school with, and now you're both NASA scientists and you're just one building away from each other. And she told me the story about when she came back to work after her sister's death that she had to go over to that building for some reason. And when she got to the door, she saw her own reflection in it and it felt like her sister was walking out again. Mm-hmm. And that, just and I knew then I said, I have to do something with twins. I'm going to mm-hmm. have, I mean, that's a big that's a tall order too, cause that's tough, but it's been really fun. And when they started talking to each other in the book, I said, where'd that coming from? I don't know how to talk like a twin. They said, just shut up, let us do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is something absolutely fascinating about Callie, who is the the, the character that we're with most of. I mean, we are, we are seeing things
0: through her point of view. She's the nerdier one who has to struggle with her weight. Karma's the badass who's, you know, in fact, when they're digital twins, when you see them on the video screens with all this stuff that's been implanted in them, all this array of sensors, and you can see the design of it, um, Callie's biggest problem with it is that the body diagram of her sister is more svelte than hers. And she's not real happy about that. She says she's chunky. The, the frailty of her, uh,
2: I mean, I love the moment where, where she goes with, with a, a young boy They go to get takeout food and she simply can't help herself. She comes back with a kind of mountain of it. She's absolutely, and the rest of the time, she's so high tech, she's so focused on what's going on. You've created a woman with this immense kind of frailty and all the things that we recognize, the fear of getting ahead, the fear of knowing what's going on, um, and yet there is this part of her that is not entirely human. That is a great
0: fascination and also a fear that we have at the moment. Well, it's happening, my dear, it's happening as we speak. You know, you can Google anything that I have in that book and you will find the technologies out there. I mean, the, the, the smart contact lenses that I call spies, the smart glasses that I call peeps, they're all acronyms. Um, that where you can literally we see we've seen this with people wearing Google glasses you know the um, you're you're multitasking where you're you're looking at something on your phone you're seeing something on the lens of your glasses while you're hearing something in this earpiece and there's something over here in one that's implanted that's what D was going you know six million dollar man um, this this sort of notion of bionic. Uh, developments, where the machine and the human begin to merge, almost like those two fingers in the Michelangelo painting of the creation. And, you know, I will say, um, spin is a little bit of a creation story, if you think about it. It's an illusion. You know, the people who have created these prototypes, 001, the Gemini Project, Gemini is Latin for twins. Those people, particularly General Melville, the commander of Space Force, and the family friend... Chase family friend, he's sort of like God and Callie and karma, almost like Adam and Eve. They've been created, recreated to, for very specific purposes and they're still fully human, but they have some things that are different about them now. And, uh, But the good thing is I don't want to scare people because you're not going to be reading about automatons or cyborgs. Oh, no, no. These are fully human people who bleed and eat and love and hate and do all the things that we do. But they have sensors just like people who might have, let's say, diabetics. Okay, you have sensor things now where your body can have aids like sensors that can help regulate the things that you need. Um, And and this is, that's, you know, this type of biomedical technology is the wave of the future and hopefully it's going to improve our lives. But at the same time, we all know there's an underbelly that's scary about this and artificial intelligence. um, That's a really big one because you've got, just imagine this, all you got to do is go on the internet and Google Boston robotics and look at the type of robots that are being done in the backflips and the cert du Soleil moves of these incredible things. And then you combine them with artificial intelligence and you set them out there as soldiers or as police, as anything, if they don't have empathy or if that algorithm is a little off and they decide they fix on you because you grew up in a certain part of town, um, this could be very serious and very dangerous. So we've got to teach machines empathy and that's going to be hard. That is going to be a hard thing. I mean, this is
2: one of the things that it, where it goes in a different direction, this idea of enhanced and medical technology because, you know, this is medical technology. I can't see you now. And now I can. And we've accepted that for many years and been enormously grateful. What Kali and Calm have is this flood of information, the world's information coming at them all the time. But information is not morality, is not ethics, Mm-mm. and is not empathy, as you say. And the question is, how do we mediate that? Is that
0: something yeah. that you want to look at in in the course of the books as you as you go? Well, here? You know, I when I do this research, you know, I talk to the real people. You know, I, I have a lot of brilliant NASA people um, that that we talk talk about these things for real, even though I'm doing it in fiction. And and we do talk about that. Can you teach a machine empathy? And you know something? I know you. I may sound crazy, but I think you can. I think you can. Because, you know, it's sort of like if someone tells you to smile and you keep smiling, you start feeling happier. <laughs> Imagine that. If someone says frown, if I frown a lot, uh, my mood's going to go Beep, like this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I've started asking the question, where does programming end and do feelings begin? Can we teach an avatar that's, you know, on our screen that's actually a computer algorithm? Um, and they have these. You can look this up. Some of it is so astonishing. But can it really feel? And what happens if we are, if we, we don't want to become like that. We want it to become more like us in a good way. But empathy Without empathy, you have sociopaths.
2: Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. And I don't want a world of sociopaths. We've seen enough of the damage they can do. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um,
2: what you also have there, of course, in the book, at heart of <laughs> the book, really, is the wonder that we have at space. And it's certainly something that's very important to Callie. And I know that you met and spent time with Astronauts themselves, including a female astronaut who had made an immense number of journeys. Just what was that like? Just getting to speak to these people who've seen worlds that we just haven't seen yet.
0: Well, I think the very first astronaut that that I that gave me a, a tour at Johnson Space Center, as a matter of fact, was um, Karen Nyberg. You can look her up. She's You know, she's been on the shuttle and up on the space station and her husband is, um, Doug is one of the very, was one of the first crew that went up in SpaceX recently when they, we finally sent somebody back up there from Kennedy instead of the Russians doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I, and I, when I first met Karen and she gave me a tour of the mock-up of the space station at Johnson Space Center. And yeah, I was intimidated. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm looking at all these instruments in this, in the, the mock-up of the space shuttle, start with that, and also the space station. I'm going, holy cow, how does anybody know what they're doing up here? This is mind-boggling. But, it, but the more I started doing it and talking to other astronauts, you know, male, Jack Fisher, for example, Peggy Whitson, for example, mm-hmm. and them sharing with me what it was like to be up there and spacewalks and what the station's like and what it sounds like, what it smells like, what it feels like, all these. What, most of all, what is it like to go up in a rocket? Cause I just, there's some research I just can't finagle my way into and that would be one of them. <laughs> and So I, how, and I said, look, how am I gonna describe this if I can't actually do it? But, but with all these wonderful people, and NASA's virtual reality, because I got to do some of that too, where I felt like I was on a spacewalk. I went up in the zero gravity plane, you know, does a a parabolic flight going like this, and and you become weightless at times, I floated. And, you know, with all of these experiences going up the mobile launcher at Kennedy, going all the way up in the elevator to see where you would get the the little bridge you'd walk across to go into the rocket, going into the crew quarters to see where you'd be sleeping and where you'd be suiting up. I was very, I I got to do all those things. um, And, and, you know, very painstakingly whenever anybody would let me under very strict um, guidelines and always with somebody like a former astronaut. Was walking me around and showing me, and because of all that, and thanks to these people, I get to take everybody on a rocket ride right at the end of spin. And you're going to then get a spin around in Callie's space plane, the Dream Chaser. That's all souped up, um, and you're going to feel what it's like because it—it's not fake. This is pretty much what it would be like. I'm letting you feel it, and and I think it's going to be a lot of fun for people.
2: I can imagine that it is fairly high on your list of things you'd like to do in your life to actually go up in space? Do you think it's something that's going to happen at some point?
0: Do you think it's something that's going to happen to you? I don't know. I mean, I would think there was a good chance of it if I were younger, if I were coming at this sooner than at this stage of my life, because depending on when rocket trips to orbiting laboratories or habitats, um, you know, we're not quite... There, where your average person's doing that. And by the way, this, the cost, of course, is prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard anywhere from 40 to $60 million to go up in a rocket and stay at the space station. Uh, I mean, ridiculous prices that are, are not doable um, mm-hmm. for anybody, hardly. Certainly not for me. And But look, if, if I get a chance, if the gods are willing, so to speak, I absolutely would do it. I'd love to do it. I want to feel what things are like. It's why I became a scuba diver. That's why I became a helicopter pilot. Not because I'm good at any of it, but enough to get a feel for it so I can describe it for you. So you can feel like you're flying a helicopter. So you can feel like you're scuba diving. So you can feel like you've gone off in a rocket, that you're in a space plane, that you're taking out an enemy weapon up there that's ruining the satellites, you know, or that you were in the morgue and you know what killed this person because you're as smart as Scarpetta is. So the goal is to make it your story. Okay, Patricia, I have to put it to you here, that a lot of people
2: would want to do those sorts of things in theory, in their minds, and perhaps that's why we enjoy reading about them so much. But there is this other thing, you know, fear. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the things that you've described are frightening. They're certainly risky in some way. Do you think fear is absolutely key? to your uh, every, life
0: as a writer? Every bit of this scares the starch out of me. People do not know how fearful I am. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of snakes and spiders. Um, you know, I'm, I can't watch gory stuff on TV. I won't even watch Grey's Anatomy, even though I know the blood is fake. I can't watch it while I'm eating. And so... And I do get afraid. The first time when I decided to do the scuba diving, it was because I wanted Scarpetta in Cause of Death to work an underwater crime scene. So I went and got started the scuba tra- training. And the first time I had to go in the pool to and put the regulator in my mouth and inhale underwater, it freaked me out so badly, I had such a panic attack that I threw up. I had to run back to the ladies' room, and I have never even done that in an autopsy but that's how scared I was. Scuba diving, it still scares me. The first time I, when I soloed in the helicopter, I was so scared that I had to start singing to myself because I was shaking like a leaf. And I said, oh my God, oh my God, I'm up here all by myself. I'm up here all, holy smoke. And and, and in my first cross country flight uh, alone, the solo in the helicopter, I got lost. I missed all my waypoints because it got foggy. And so I had to call for help. And they declared a mayday at the airport because it was a well-known person. And you know, so listen, I lump along and do the best I can. But um, life is about dealing with fear. I'm telling you, everything's about how we deal with fear. You got to learn to deal with it because it will get in your way. You have to know the gift of fear when you should be afraid. Like when you get on that elevator and there's somebody on there that gives you a bad feeling, get the hell off. Listen to your gift of fear, but don't have the curse of fear where it stops you from doing things that you should do.
2: How much do you think that feeling of, okay, fear is there, but we have to do it anyway, comes back to that idea of looking at death so staunchly when you worked in the mortuary, when you began to write about it, you have to face death and say, this is something that happens.
0: That's why I wear it. You see this right here? You know what the meaning of the skull is? The skull is that you look death in the face and are unafraid. And Socrates thought the silliest thing about humans is how afraid of death we are, because he really truly believed that, it, that that's not all there is. You know, this is just our manifestation right here, which is why when they accused him basically of of. Impiety, in other words, you know, sacrilege, and also corrupting the minds of, of young people by encouraging them to think for themselves. Imagine that idea. Um, he chose to take the hemlock and say, "See you later." You know, when because they were going to put him to death, but he, or he could have left town, but he wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid. Um, we should, we need to be sensible. Like, for God's sake, let's be careful during COVID. I don't want to get that. I mean, we know we can die. We don't want to die. But there are things that you can do that, like if you're afraid of writing a book, I'm scared of every day I go in my office. It's, I mean, it's awful. What if I nothing happens? What if they don't talk to me? Sometimes they don't, but I still got to do it. Just go, do the best you can. And every little fear you conquer, it will get easier. You might be shocked at the things you can do. We have so much more capabilities than we give ourselves credit for. When you started to write, when you wrote, post-mortem
2: I mean in a sense obviously that's risky writing a book is always risky you don't know if it's going to be published succeed fail find readers but later on you know you were very very are very very successful with Scarpetta you then wrote about Jack the Ripper in a change in tax that was extremely controversial and continues to be. This too is a kind of risk. It's a completely different kind of writing, writing about space. Uh, you know, people will say, the Scarpetta. When are you going to write another Scarpetta? What about different risks from scuba diving and helicopter flying, but they're risks nonetheless. How do you
0: take those on board? Well, really, truly what you just said about the books, those are the, bigger, the biggest risks I could ever take, far exceeding, putting my hand on the cyclic or jumping overboard with my fins on. I mean, you know, writing any book. And, and here's the thing, though. You've got to tell the truth. You've got to tell the truth. Scarpetta was, is a truth to me. When I talk to you in those books about death and violence and human nature and science and all the things that we talk about in those Scarpetta books, I am telling you a truth you need to know. And in space stories, I'm telling you truths that you need to know, and I want you to think about things that might be true that we don't, that we're not sure of. Like, where are we from? Are we really from here? Because Francis Crick, who discovered the Dover helix of the D, of DNA, doesn't believe we were. Doesn't believe we are. He wrote a paper on it in 1972. He believes that life on Earth was was seeded by a higher society from somewhere else. The same things that we're going to start doing out there eventually. You can think what you want but you should read the paper. It's very interesting, but it's truth. And Jack the Ripper, listen, I start. I started that research because the Scotland Yard, their premier investigator, wanted to give me a tour of the Jack the Ripper's, what was left of the crime scenes in London. And I wasn't interested in it in the least. And then I said, well, what evidence is this based on? And he said, talked about the letters at the National Archives. And I started looking into that because I thought it was going imp- to imp- Put something in, in the next Scarpetta novel. Mm-hmm. And then the stuff I started finding made my hair stand on end. And I told my agent, I said, I really, I think I know who Jack the Ripper is. And I have to deal with this. I don't want to, but I have to. And um, I, the, right, you know, r- right up to the time that I was going to sign that contract, I didn't want to do it. And mm-hmm. I was scared. And and I'm not going to say any of it It was fun. I don't regret it. I still think that Walter Sickert is Jack the Ripper, um, regardless of what anybody says, but it doesn't matter. I don't take any of it back. And I told a truth that needed to be told. If people ever read it, they might might be surprised what's in that book in terms of the evidence pointing very strongly in a certain direction, real evidence that was not examined by me, but by real scientists. Mm -hmm. So, and now with space... Um, you know not everybody is as interested in space as they are the morgue because the the common denominator in the morgue is us mm-hmm. um, but the the common denominator in space is also us because what we're looking for is ourselves why do we want to go up there what are we looking for we're looking for more meaning about us who are we and what other places can we can we inhabit as this need to explore never dies you know whether it's discovering another country or a part of the world that, that, you know, because you have capabilities of getting there going all the way back to when the ship sailed, sailed out of um, the Isle of Dogs, you know, and came to what's now Virginia um, Mm -hmm. and settled the first permanent uh, American, you know, English settlement there in 1607. And where's why do we do this? Why did we go to the moon? oh my goodness, and why has it taken 60 years to get back or longer? So I think that um, space is about us. And if you, don't, if you don't think much about it, trust me, it's thinking about you. <laughs> um, there was something you alluded to earlier, and I know you, you've said
2: it before. You said this research, I mean, probably all your writing life and, and life in general, this research has made you think differently about death as the end and i
0: wonder what you meant by that well if you if you study space you're i mean it is it is you know drinking from a fire hose of science and science 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 everything is about science and when you start understanding particularly the invisible world of electromagnetic energy which is all around us if we could colonize it right now um, you would be you'd be hiding on the floor because of all stuff flying through this room, signals that are being transmitted from your phone, from your TV, from your computer, from, it could, uh, it could be from something that's outside. It, we are bombarded by electromagnetic energy. And one of the principles um, in physics is that energy, you know, cannot be created or destroyed. And I don't believe we can be created or destroyed. The energy that is us is, is eternal. Um, and and I, it starts before you were born. You were never born and you won't die. Not the you that's you. This body will. And it's very similar to what I mean, it's like religion. You can call it the soul or the spirit. What I call it, it is the, it is the life force that is who you are, who I am, who other people are. And I can, t- you know, and, and when you're in space, if you're going to do a DNA experiment, Um, you go to a glove box and it's a set of gloves and there's a box and you put your hands in it. Um, It's because you can't touch what's ever in there. The same if you're looking at moon rocks, you put your hands in a glove box and you can touch those moon rocks at Johnson Space Center, but it's the gloves. So think of yourself as a glove box. You're the gloves, but what's moving them? That's you. But who are you? Well, I don't know, but I'd like to find out. One of the
2: things that you're talking about there, I, I guess, and, and throughout things, when you talk about the space programme, when we talk about science, is this idea of collective endeavour. You know, and you talk about humans as magnificent people. And, and as we know, individuals can be less than magnificent and some absolutely magnificent. But the novel is often a form of individuals, of a person talking to a person, to an individual reader. But I think you do believe in this collective good and collective
0: consciousness, don't you? Yes, I do, and I also believe uh, I believe in collective evil. And um, yeah, you know, look, I, I, whether you want to call it matter or antimatter, good, evil, there for every good force there is something's going to counter it, um, and, and that goes—that's that, just one of the laws of physics too. There's going to be an equal and opposite reaction. You can ask Sir Isaac Newton. And by the way, he discovered a lot of his laws of physics when he was living in a pandemic and was, was um, sheltered at home. I mm-hmm. guess he had a lot of time to look out the window and see that apple go, you know, um, and discover gravity. But any, that's not really how it happened. But anyway, or, but, you know, all of this, when you study enough of this, you have to start thinking what does this really mean about who and what we are? Religion talks about it in terms of the soul and having eternal life and streets paved in gold. And, you know, well, I believe in it that, that there is something beyond this. I think that's metaphorical. But mm-hmm. what, whatever you want to call the higher power, God, your soul, the spirit, that is who we all are. And I do not believe that dies. And I've seen bodies in the morgue that have not been dead but a few hours, and they look exactly like their driver's license picture. But the light is out. The light is gone. They've even tried weighing bodies um, to see if uh, how much the soul weighs. Oh, he's three pound. He's three ounces less than he was when he died. Well, that's probably because he. Never mind. There's reasons that could happen. But um, it's not because his soul went somewhere. I don't think we we've always been trying to figure out what is this, what is this in us? Um, but I feel very hopeful about it. Very hopeful. Um, I want to stay alive and do the best I can. And I don't look forward to not being here any more than anybody else probably does. But I do have faith that this is just, like an image in a mirror that only begins to give us the slightest reflection of what everything is about. And I I encourage people to open their minds, to read, read, spin. It will get you thinking about this. Think about yourself and who Mm -hmm. you are and what you can be because we are better than we think we are. And people need to start realizing that right now before we sink any lower, especially in this country.
2: How has it been, Patricia, in the pandemic, when yes, in theory, there's been more time to write, there have been fewer calls on your very busy schedule, but we have seen um, terrible trauma visited on people, politically, as you say, in America, and not only in America, we've seen Mm. terrible things happening, and great division. How does that feel as a writer? As you sitting
0: there thinking, well, how do I begin to make something from this? Well, it's funny you would say that because the one thing for sure that's come out of this pandemic for me is I decided to do another Scarpetta book. And I was I told everybody I was never doing another one. I was done. I, you know, chaos was the 24th. And I felt like I, I honestly just felt I'd run out of things to say. And, and she wouldn't even answer my text messages anymore. She walked off the job. She said, you know what? Mm-hmm. I've been doing this for like, 25 years now. You've you've shot me with a spear gun. You killed my husband. Then you brought him back. I mean, I've she's had she's you. Know, I've had the serial killer get in my window. You know, she's tired of it. So I moved on. But then with all this starting, I thought, what the hell would she make of this? What would she do? And so that's what I'm doing now. And I've put her right outside of Washington in Northern Virginia, and she's going to be dealing with everything that the rest of us are and more. So tell me, she's—you've gone back
2: to Scarpetta. You've said okay. The text message arrived. The call arrived. She knocked at the door, but I am—I am more than guessing that uh, quantum and spin. Well, you leave us. Let me just say this: kind of dangling, as it
0: were. I'm bad about that. You know, I did it in quantum too, and I've done it in Scarpetta books. At the end of Cruel and Unusual, the killer escapes out the window, and. Um, and, as, you know, people, when they call to say that, oh, but something's a cliffhanger, it's like, um, everything of mine is kind of like that, if you've ever read it. I, I, I stop when it's at a good point to stop it, knowing we're going to pick up with something later. But in spin, yes, um, we leave Callie. She is up in the geostationary orbit. She's 22,000 miles above Earth when we say see you later. And um, it would be nice probably to bring her home sometime. That would kind of be, the, 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 you know, the sporting thing to do, don't you think? i do i don't
2: think you should never mind her i don't think you should leave us up there never has a publisher's blurb on the the book actually says we'll leave you know the readers desperate for more and i thought well yeah i mean like literally she's up in the air and so are we so how is work going on
0: more of cali and calm well what's happening right now is you know i'm fully you know going to town with the new scarpetta book which will be out um this year, be out November 30th. So I've got a very steep deadline on my hands and that's what I'm doing. When that's finished, then we will see about Captain Chase, but I do have thoughts about what's going to happen because she will come back home. I'm not, she might have a stop or two on the way. I'm not sure yet. She hasn't told me, but she will land at uh, Kennedy space center um, in her space plane, which lands like a glider, just like the dream chaser does, which is kind of what it is. And, um, and then of course, Neva Wrong ain't done yet. He, she's not happy. Callie just really did a number on her up there. She's got so watch out for part two. <laughs> I have to say, Neva Wrong is is right up there with villains. You've done a you've done a good job with a the villain there. God, isn't she the best? I love her because I hate her so much. She is the most evil, vile, lovely, and delicious thing ever. And she's all David Heyman's fault. David Heyman, you know, Harry Potter producer, and so much more. Um, I, I was talking to him about this series in the very beginning. And he says, Oh, you've got to have a good villain. And I said, I'm not very good at villains. And I said, but what makes a good villain? He said, someone who, a bad person who thinks they're good. And I said, well, that could be a lot of people. But I thought, God, that's brilliant. Yes. Neva wrong thinks she's wonderful. She thinks she's wonderful. And she's consummate evil, but she's bombastic. She's fun. I mean, look, the Captain Chase series, unlike Scarpetta, is a little bit campy. Just a little bit. I mean, when Callie's in her new chase car, with her, that's artificially intelligent, um, assisted. She has her, her sidekick art, her artificial research um, technician, which is like a, a Siri on quantum, gone quantum, you know, uh, that she talks to and that, that when, and when they're not getting along, when karma gets mad at art, that's his name, um, she threatens to Google something which really pees him off, P.O.'s them off. That's, you just don't do that to art the threatened to Google. Well, that's really two timing. So, but you know, it's a little bit campy. Okay. When, when she's, you know, having to, she gets caught in the ice and has to have the flamethrower, you know, in her car, by the way, there are cars that have all the stuff or can that I describe on her chase mobile. I talked to secret service friend and I said, what kind of stuff could somebody, you know, really, if you're pulling out the stops, what would you do with a vehicle? She said, Anything you can think of, we're probably doing it. I said, flamethrower, check. Uh, <laughs> M-16, check. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what's a, what, what about a smoker? You know, she can't, check. I said, um, okay, what what about a license plate that can morph so that you can change your identity? She said, I'm not talking about that. you, you see, whatever you make up, you just go ahead. <laughs> she said, because if we're not doing it, we're going to.
2: I'm not sure I want it, though, to be honest. I get irritated enough when the thing beeps to tell me I haven't put my seatbelt on yet. So,
0: you know, it will be something. Well, listen, Alex, unless you need a flamethrower or you need to to smoke somebody or hit them with a water cannon or take out their tires. And I I don't know about how you drive over there in the UK, but if I hear you need something like that, you and I will talk later, okay? (laughs)
2: Um, we have a couple of questions from readers that I'm just going to throw at you, if I, if I may. Um, somebody says, since you, you first wrote um, Postmortem, how has technology in crime detection affected the way you write? Because as you say, you know, we just weren't thinking about it at all then.
0: But it's changed a lot. Oh, it, technology changes everything that I would write. I mean, if you're talking about Scarpetta, for example. Whatever I'm going to do at a crime scene, I have to know the science that she's going to use or what she's going to find or what she's going to look for or because that's going to that, that's going to directly impact what kind of death it is or what you find there or what she notices. So you have to. You, you, you have to, you have to get into this technology and you have to know how it's changed. For example, today, a crime scene has not at all worked like it was when I was first getting started. Um, you know, worked, I went to work in the, the morgue for six years to learn about it. And I was a volunteer police person for a number of years and rode with detectives every weekend and all that kind of stuff. And, and since those days, I mean, if you don't keep up, your slip will show because somebody will read that um, you don't know that there's infrared thermometers. A lot of crime scenes now, they just use the IR thermometer the same way they do to see if you have a fever for COVID. Um, They're not necessarily inserting a thermometer into the victim's liver, which probably is a better way to do it because you're getting a core body temperature. Not, I mean, I don't know, but I do know between that And of course, the hazmat concerns in the morgue, all the safety uh, measures down there are nothing like what they were when I was getting started. Um, The way crime scene units are deployed and how they take over a scene is very different than the days of Marino and Scarpetta just barreling on through. Um, Now there are different protocols. and, And within reason, I have to adhere to all of those whether it's a space protocol, what does the astronaut, the person do? How do they suit up? How do they belt into their, their chair? Um, It was, you know, I had this very funny moment where you have these with the the launch and entry suits, you know, you see the astronauts walking to get on the Astro van to go up to the rocket. And now they're in these white um, space suits, not the pumpkin orange ones. They used to be the new SpaceX suits. Um, And those suits are pressurized if there's an emergency. And they they but you don't pressurize it if there's not an emergency. So I had a scene at the end of spin when Callie's sitting up there getting ready to take, you know, to launch and at, at first I had that her suit was inflated and you know I had to be told no that would not be inflated. It's not inflated unless there's an emergency. These are the kinds of things you just don't want to get wrong. Yeah. And it and it changes how you to write a scene, and you don't want to write a scene that's based on bad information.
2: I have a, another question here, and somebody asks again with Scalpetta, it's a really intriguing question. Over so many books, what would you say was your favorite relationship within the series?
0: Oh, that's a well, you know, that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that before. Now, that says quite a lot. You know, I, I think that. Honestly, probably Marino and Scarpetta are, I think, in many ways, the most interesting. It's the most flawed relationship. Um, and he, you know, I, he, he was a bit of a stereotype. He's kind of like the 1980s cop that I first got to know. But that doesn't work anymore. And I tried to make him a little more highly evolved as we went along in the series. And then he really just got be a pain in the butt. Um, and then he wasn't very nice at certain times. But, um, but overall, that's really my fault, not his, okay? I screwed up at times, and I shouldn't have had him do certain things that he did. That's my fault, all on me. But there's something about the two of them. When they get in the car together, or he comes over to talk about something, it's, it, it just works really well when it works really well. Mm -hmm. They have a simpatico relationship and I'm really seeing it now in this new one that I'm just starting that because um, all the ensemble is there and they're all within walking distance of each other, which is going to be really fun. Um, It's the post pandemic. It's right outside of Washington. And Marino is in a very interesting manifestation. I'm not going to tell you, but um, once again, when those two get together, But I love her relationship with Benton and of course with Lucy. Lucy's very important and um, that's a very special one too. So, but once again, whether you're talking about space or the morgue, from space to ground to six feet under, it's all about people and it's about relationships. It's about what moves us and what motivates us and what doesn't.
2: Patricia, I think the most important thing we need to let you do now is basically go to your office. Because those <laughs> people whose characters, whether they're in space, on the ground, or as you say, six feet under, don't sound like they're gonna stop knocking
0: anytime soon. Um it's been hey, such hey, a pleasure. It's been tell the story. A, That's my job to tell the story. Thank you. It's been such a, pleasure a pleasure to talk to you to again you. too. It's been wonderful. we thank you so much to Harrogate for,
2: for making this happen but we we'll, at some point in the future we'll be able to do this in person again oh. and, yeah, very very many thanks to you
1: thanks for reaching the end of the episode we hope you enjoyed it it would be great if you could do us a quick favour and head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five star and then leave a nice glowing review it'll help boost the podcast at the charts which makes it easier for more people to find us and join our exciting podcast community.